Luke 15, 11 through 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed a fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his, this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Hasn't it been wonderful already to worship the Lord and sing the songs as we are just a few days away from Christmas? And this is the fourth uh, sermon in this series called Home Alone. We uh, looked uh, the first week at this reckless son. We looked on uh, the second Sunday at this righteous son. And then we uh, looked last week as Andrew wonderfully preached about the marks of true repentance. Phenomenal sermon Andrew brought last week, the marks of true repentance. And this morning we discover a longing father. As a matter of fact, some uh, scholars, biblical scholars, have renamed this parable not the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of the prodigal God. The parable of a God who would go to great lengths to do great things to get his children back. And we've talked about the movie all along, and you may recall in the movie that the mom does just that. She goes to great lengths in the movie Home Alone to 
get to her boy. Check this scene out. And so she finds herself in the back of a budget rental truck singing and listening to more polka music than she ever, ever desired. Why? One reason, to get to her boy. This morning in this parable, we discover the heartbeat of a longing father. And we're going to see three significant beats or hear three significant beats of his heart. And the first heartbeat of a longing father is this, reckless son, I want you to return. Or reckless son, God wants you to return. The boy in verse 17 who asked his dad for everything he had come into him and went his way is now come to his senses. Uh, verse 17, he came to himself and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? He decides to come home. In verse 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he prepares a speech. If you've ever been a kid in trouble, you know this speech. You've gone over it time and time again in your mind. How will I break this to my parents? And so this son who is penniless, who has been in the pigsty, uh, is now headed home. And this is what he says. I will arise and I'll give him this speech. And here it is. Father, I have sinned against heaven. And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. And there's a tiny little conjunction, but. Now, conjunctions in and of themselves have little meaning. It's what follows them that makes them significant in language. It could either be a but, it didn't turn out well, or but, it turned out really well. Notice what follows this tiny little conjunction. But while... He was still a long way off. Most likely, this home was in a village. Most people lived in villages in that day. Few people lived out in the field. So most likely, this home was in a village. Most likely, there was a narrow street that ran down all the, uh, the villages in those days. And most likely, the father who lives in probably one of the larger homes in the villages looks down the narrow street and he sees his son a long way off. What does that mean? It means, as Jesus tells the story, that the dad was watching for his boy. It means the father was looking a long way down the road. He was watching. Who knows how long he had sat there? Who knows how many days he had sat by the window and looked out that window longing to see his boy come walking down the road? And this is the day. But while he was still a long way off, it says that this father never stopped wanting his boy to come home. This father never stopped longing for his son to come home. The heartbeat 
of a longing father is reckless sons. God wants you to return. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Anyone listening to Jesus' story is surprised at this point. Why? Because no one expects the father to feel compassion over a boy who went and took everything that he gave to him as his inheritance and wasted it. Who would feel compassion? The entire village expects this dad to be angry. The entire village expects this dad to be furious. The entire village most likely is ready to come. And if they didn't do this ceremony already, they're going to do the official excommunication of this boy. That ceremony. What does that look like? I mentioned this four Sundays ago. They would take a jar, put some burnt grain in that jar, break that jar, and say, by doing so, that this boy no longer belonged in that village nor to his parents. He ought to be gone. Uh, Bible scholars wonder, wonder why the dad ran he, he ran out to him, and before the boy could say a word, he embraced him. Literally, the word means he put his head on the boy's neck. He just almost lay on his son's neck and kissed him. Pigsty and all. What we know from this is that reckless sons and daughters who sit in here this morning and you have wrecked your life and shame so characterizes you. God wants you to come home. Rudyard Kipling writes a short story. At the beginning of the short story, he talks about a cruel joke played by a man in Madrid. He decided to take an ad out in the paper, and this is what the ad said. The ad said, I know all you've done, and I want you to know, it began by the name Paco. Paco, I know all you've done. Paco being a crazy common name in Spain. I know all you've done, and I want you to know that all is forgiven. Meet me, gave the hotel name, Papa. It's just a joke. In Kipling's story, he says that the next morning when that ran in the paper, the police had to be called to corral the 800 Pacos who arrived at the hotel wanting their dad's forgiveness. This is no joke. God longs for you to come home. 
However far you've strayed, whatever you've done, whatever the sin may be, whatever the hang-up may be, whatever the habit may be, whatever the addiction may be, whatever the waste you feel you have made of your life, you have a heavenly Father who longs for you to come home, who's sitting by the window, who's watching the road, who longs to see you make this move toward Him. The heartbeat of a father is seen clearly here and heard clearly here. God, reckless son, reckless daughter, God longs for you to return. The second heartbeat we hear is that God longs to cover your sinfulness. This dad ran. We may not find that to be unusual, but there are two things that make it very unusual if we were to be listening to Jesus tell this story. Number one, refined and distinguished Middle Eastern patriarchs never ran. Uh, They didn't run. They just didn't do it. Uh, It was beneath them to run. It was below their dignity to do something like that. Uh, This dad ran. The second reason he ran and or that's unusual that he ran is because men and women wore robes down to their ankles usually. You can't run in a robe. In order for him to be able to run then, and he did in Jesus' story, in order for him to be able to run, uh, he had to pick his robe up, thereby revealing his nakedness, his legs, which was considered to be undignified. And so he grabs his robe, he pulls it up, he goes running down uh, through the village street, unveiling his nakedness, embarrassing himself in front of the entire village. Why? Why would he run to his boy? Why not wait for him to get home? Nobody really knows, but... A possible thought and really probable thought is this, is that the boy would be met by this angry village with great revenge. They remember the day the for sale signs went up on the father's property. They remember the look on the father's face. They remember how the boy shamed his own dad and his own brother and his father's estate. They know all of that. They have a ceremony to kick him out. They are armed and ready until they see this patriarch, this wealthy aristocrat, robe in his hand, naked legs revealed, running down the road, to meet his boy. They stop. What can they do? Robe drops. Dad's publicly embarrassed himself. Throws his arms around his son, embraces him pigsty and all. We know from the story that a scene has developed. 
it's unfolding. How do we know that? The dad turns to the servants who must have run with him. And how he says what he says is astounding. He turns to his servants. And the boy begins his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. If you compare the two speeches, the boy never finishes his talk. And in the other speech, he adds to it, the one he prepared, make me like one of your hired servants. In the delivered speech, there's no hired servant talk. Why? Either the dad interrupts him or the boy is so overcome with emotion and love from his father. How could he ask his dad just to make him a hired servant? He's his father's son. He knows he's his father's son. He doesn't even go there. What happens But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. They're not even home yet. They're out somewhere afar off and the father has seen his boy somewhere out there and he has run to him and servants have run in tow and the father has revealed his nakedness in order that he may do what? Cover his boy. Bring my best robe and put it on him. Pigstein all. You don't have to clean yourself up, son. This robe will take care of that. Before you walk down the street of this village, you're going to walk down the street in my robe. I'm not here to out you. I'm here to cover you. Get a ring. Get some sandals. The robe, honor. The ring, trust. Sandals, respect. Hard servants didn't wear shoes. Respect. Now, come on, boy. Let's go home. God longs to cover your sinfulness. The very thing that surfaces in your mind every time the record plays back again and again, God longs to cover. The thing that has wrecked your family, God longs to cover. The sin that wrecked your career, God longs to cover. God Longs to cover your sinfulness. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate right there in the streets. No, there's no shameful mocking. Look at what he did. They're celebrating. This boy was lost and he's found. He was dead and he is alive. He is home. And they're celebrating with this patriarch, this dad. And Jesus could have stopped the story right there and it would have been good. But he didn't. He continues. There's an older son who is in the field. He hears what's going on. He comes in. He discovers that his younger brother is back and the fattened calf has been killed and 
And then we have one of those conjunctions that has something ugly on the other side, verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. And the dad embarrasses himself for the second time in a day. He leaves a party that most likely 200 people are attending. If it's a fattened calf, that's how many it would serve. He leaves a party. He leaves a feast. He leaves his position at the head uh, table at this feast, and he walks out, and people begin to whisper, oh, where's he going? What's he doing? Well, the older brother's out, and he won't come in. It's an ultimate sign of disrespect. We know the brother's attitude because his father came out and he treated him, but he answered his father, look. He doesn't say anything respectful, but just look, he says. These many years I have served you, I never disobeyed, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Well, yeah, the father had given him his inheritance when he gave his younger brother his. The boy had everything he ever needed right there in the father's home. We begin to hear the third heartbeat of a longing dad, and it's righteous son. God wants you to return. The brother continues, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the dad talks again. Son, I wish you could see this in the original language. There are two words in original Greek to, to say son. One is the word you would use if you're introducing your son or daughter. And you would say, this is my son, so-and-so. This is my daughter, so-and-so. So far throughout this story, that is the word that has been used until now. The second word is the, is the way you refer to your kids when you're just with them. You know, I'll, I'll say, sometimes call Hanny, Hannah, Hanny, right? And it's just a term of affection for her. Or Trent, I'll say, come here, boy. And he knows what that means. And it's just father, son, stuff. This is what the dad does. He says, my beloved son. My beloved boy. You are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. You see, most of us can identify with this father in some way loving this reckless kid because the reckless kid has repented. The reckless kid is coming home. But we struggle to see this father speaking so tenderly to the self-righteous son, don't we? Call him out. He's jealous. No. The father longs for the self-righteous person, son or daughter, to come home too. The morally good man, the morally good woman, the person who's never made the news, never committed a crime, never uh, smoked weed, never uh, done anything that, that would get 
him or her in serious trouble. But herein lies the problem. Sometimes that person is at home and doesn't realize he's lost. Uh, Rebecca Tolna has written a book, interestingly enough, about how to get lost well. And when I read the title, I thought, that's fascinating. It's written for people who, who hike a lot in the Rockies. Evidently, people get lost a lot. And so in her book, she writes to say, if you're going to be lost, if you find yourself lost, here's what to do. Here's how to be ready should you get lost. Uh, she tells the story of an 11-year-old boy who was deaf and partially blind who was there with his family and he got lost. The difficulty of finding a deaf, partially blind boy is staggering. His parents had equipped him with a whistle and said to him, if you ever sense that you're lost, blow the whistle will come to the sound of the whistle. When he sensed he was lost, he began to blow the whistle. What he didn't realize is he was by a loud stream. And the water rushing, the sound of the rushing water drowned out the sound of the whistle and night fell and the boy remained lost. The next morning when the sun came up, he began to blow the whistle again, and after hours of searching, they found the boy safe, very cold, but safe. But then she makes an interesting observation. She says that children are found much more frequently than are adults. That when children get lost, they are found much more frequently than adults. Why? She said, because they realize they're lost. And usually when children get lost, they'll stay right where they are, they don't move, and they wait on an adult to come find them. Adults, and, and she says children are even known to curl up and fall asleep right where they're, they're lost because they wait on somebody to come to them. Adults don't do that, she says. Adults get more lost trying to save themselves. They end up going directions they do not understand in places they do not know and end up being more lost because they refuse to realize they are. Such is the case with the older brother. He is lost but refuses to realize it. Oh, it's those people. It, it's him. He accuses his brother of, of wasting his money with prostitutes. He has no clue. There's no basis for his accusation, but he just makes that. Compared to him, I'm pretty good. The boy is at home, but as far away from home as he could be. 
it's possible that there are some really good people sitting here this morning. You may even be a member of this church or another church. You may have done some good things, given some good money, said some good words. You may be a good mom. You may be a good wife. You may be a good friend. You may be a good provider. You may be a good husband. And lost. At home and far away from God. Going to hell on your own good works, good deeds, good things. A decision you made, uh, a piece of paper you signed, water you stepped into to be baptized in. Without the love of the Father. It was a few weeks ago that I found myself in traffic court. And it was a crowded room, small, way too small for all the people who had gotten tickets. All right? And there was a glass door that opened off the street into the room. It was time for court to start, and the first case was called. It was a woman who all the school teachers here can, can identify, but hopefully not too much. It was a woman who had gone in during school, during, while school was in session, students were there for a parent-teacher conference for her fourth grade daughter with a teacher and a, uh, a student teacher. She had the meeting and on the way out decided she would swipe the student teacher's wallet. Well, they start the case and we're hearing all of this and she isn't there when the door flings open, this glass door flings open and I hear this whisper. It's a packed courtroom and I hear this whisper and this is what it is. That's her. And when you, when you could hear everything in there and everybody turned to look and in she walked. And so that she went through, you know, the, 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 the metal detector deal, and she walked up there, and the judge said, where have you been? And she said, uh, well, I had to walk here this morning. I don't have transportation, and it took me longer than I expected. He said, you need to plan your schedule better next time. I went, ooh, it's going to be a bad day. And so they proceeded with the case, and the, the, the teacher told her story, and the assistant told her story, or the student teacher, and the cop told her story. And the judge turns and looks at the woman, and he says, how do you plead? And she said, not guilty. I thought, oh. Because the cop said that once the teacher had the whole classroom look for the wallet and couldn't find it, they called the police and said, this woman was here. Maybe she has something to do with it. They found her at the local convenience store. She had conveniently purchased a lottery ticket. And so they asked her, would you have any clue where this wallet is? And she said, it could be at the end of the road in a trash can. And sure enough, they went down there and voila, there's the wallet. At the end of the road, empty of its contents, a couple stick drives, those kinds of things, and she's not guilty, and I'm thinking, this has got to be good. 
If she's not guilty and they did all this, and so finally it's her turn and they turn to her, the judge turns to her and he says, now what do you have to say for yourself? And we're all in there just leaning forward. We want to hear. And here's what she says. Are you ready? None of you would ever pick this. She said, I have low blood sugar. (laughs) Well, okay. Orange juice, peanut butter. I mean, there are answers for low blood sugar. This is not a major medical emergency. And the judge looked at her like, you could tell he was thinking, low blood sugar? And she said, and when it's really bad, I forget everything. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, we're all going, yeah, right. And she proceeds to talk about the woes of low blood sugar and how bad low blood sugar is and how it's caused her to be violent before. And so the judge sits there quietly and he looks at her and we're all just wondering what is next as this thing unfolds. And he says, well, does low blood sugar cause you to play the lottery? Ripple of laughter, but not too loud. We're scared. Then, he says, does low blood sugar cause you to steal? And he looked at her, and he said to her, it's a $1,000 fine on each count. You got two counts, about $2,200 worth. Are you prepared to pay? No, I'm not. Do you know anyone who can help you pay? No, I don't. And this mom of a fourth grader went to jail for two months. Wow. Hate it for that fourth grader, right? Well, then here's the next case, and I thought we were just doing traffic tickets, and I'm now engaged. All right? Thinking this stuff could be good. And this woman walks forward, and a young young woman, she walks forward, and then this man and another cop. And so... name, whatever. How do you plead? She said guilty. What is it? She went to Burke's outlet. The manager says, went into the dressing room and she packed her bag full of clothes. All right. I must confess. I'm thinking if you're going to do that, go to Belk, you know, but at any rate, um, so she does that, packs her bag full of clothes. And so manager gives his story, cop gives his story, what he discovered when he got there, met her, and the judge looks at her and says, well, what do you have to say for yourself? And I loved her answer. She said what they said. I loved it. You know what? She owned it. I'm sitting there thinking, you owned it, right? And everything in me is totally inclined to do what? Mercy for her. Judgment. For the first one. All right? But here's what Jesus did, and I brought something to help illustrate. I have a robe. For those of you whose weddings I've done, I've probably worn this. Sometimes I wear it for academic reasons. It's my robe here. If I can get it on. Here we go. When I put this robe on, it, it effectively covers most of everything I'm wearing. And it, uh, it shows if I walk into a wedding, everybody knows who the preacher is, right? Always the case. When I walk in like this, if, if I'm over at Montreat, it shows that I teach or whatever. Um, the judge was wearing a robe too. And when he walked in the room, guess what? All of us criminals knew who he was. 
right? We knew he was the judge. What if? What if he had done this? What if after those first two cases, he called the first woman who had been now cuffed back in? And he asked that other young woman to stay. And he walked down to them and he said to them, both are guilty as charged. But he said to them, come here and help me out. Yeah. But he said to them, here, this is what I want to do. You can stand right there. Yeah. And he said, here's what I want to do. I'm going to take my robe off. I'm going to put it on you. I'm going to put it on you. And then he sticks his hands out. He puts them behind his back. And he says, take me instead. <laughs> no, that's not what you would do. Bad cue. All right. All right. This is Detroit, everybody. So he says, take me instead. Everybody who looks at him thinks he is the what? Judge. But the judge is going down that long hallway. Arrested. You can be seated. Arrested. Arrested. While. While those criminals, those thieves, wear his rope. There's a difference in the two. The first woman is like the older son. She refuses the rope. The second says what they said. I'll take the rope. That's what Jesus did. When he told this story, what's he saying? Here's a dad who's going to run down the road and pull his robe up and unveil his nakedness so that his boy can be covered. Christmas, Jesus came screaming naked into the world. God, naked, so that you could be covered. There was a cross that cast a shadow over the manger, and the crucifixion, Jesus hung naked so that he could take his robe of righteousness. And if you would but receive it, cover you so from that point on when anybody looks at you they don't see the broken record playing in your mind they don't hear the accusing thoughts and most importantly when God the ultimate judge looks at you you're dressed in his robe That's what the old songwriter meant when he said, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. In one of those verses he said, Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne.